0: Flowers in the Attic by V.C. Andrews is easily one of the most requested books of all time on SSR. Over the years, I have heard from many of you who have wanted my take on this polarizing novel, which was published in 1979. Due to its depictions of heavy topics like incest, abuse, and sexual assault, Flowers in the Attic is controversial, to put it mildly, and I actually never read it, at least not until it was time to record this episode. Before I go any further, I will offer a trigger warning and remind you to take care of yourself. Flowers in the Attic mentions attempted murder, child abuse, child death, incest, poisoning, rape, religion, and starvation. My guests and I do touch on all of these subjects to some degree. While Flowers in the Attic is extremely dark, it is also a beautifully constructed novel a fact that opens up space for us to discuss how we as consumers can respond to complicated material. As I struggle to figure out how to have an opinion about the book, my guests and I discuss these complexities in detail. We also talk about gender expectations, quirky author behavior, V.C. Andrew's descriptive and narrative skill, and the ways in which the characters in Flowers in the Attic must come to terms with the humanity and evil of the adults in their life. This is a really juicy conversation, and I can't wait to hear what you think about it. You know today's guest, you love her, and I feel so lucky to have her on the pod. It's Carly Fortune. Carly is the New York Times bestselling author of Every Summer After, an instant international bestseller. She is an award winning journalist and worked as an editor at some of Canada's top publications, including The Globe and Mail, Chatelaine, Toronto Life and the much-beloved, now-defunct weekly paper, The Grid. She was most recently the executive editor of Refinery29 Canada. Carly spent her young life in the suburbs of Sydney, Australia, and in Barry's Bay, a tiny lakeside town in Ontario and the setting for every summer after. She now lives in Toronto with her husband and two sons. Her new book, Meet Me at the Lake, hits shelves on May 2, 2023. Carly is going to tell you more about it later in the episode, and I know you're going to want to pre-order it. So go for it. Follow Carly on Instagram and Twitter at Carly Fortune for all the news about Meet Me at the Lake, updates on her reading life, and more. You can also follow SSR on social media for all kinds of good stuff, including podcasts behind the scenes, updates on my personal reading, and lots and lots of Golden Retriever content. We all know that people come for the podcast and stay for my fur baby, Irving. Find me at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter, and on Facebook by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Book Club. If you love what you hear today, and if the work I do on the show means something to you, your support would mean a lot to me. You can leave a five-star rating or review on your podcast player of choice. If you're new to the show, you can check out our extensive catalog of old episodes. You can follow and subscribe to SSR wherever you listen to podcasts. You can take a screenshot of this episode and share it to your Instagram story, tagging me at SSRPod so I can see it. You can also take a step further and become an SSR patron. SSR is an independent podcast, which means I am a one-woman show who operates without the financial backing of a larger organization. The contributions I get through Patreon are absolutely essential to helping the show grow and to attracting fantastic guests like Carly Fortune. And there's plenty in it for patrons too. As an SSR patron, you get access to lots of exclusive perks, including bonus episodes, monthly newsletters, book clubs, our Discord, and more. Get all the details and get involved at www.patreon.com slash or by going to www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. You can also find a link to join Patreon in SSR's Instagram bio. I am sending a big thank you to every patron tuning in now. Episode 239 is brought to you by my first ever downloadable product, the AHK Podcast Primer. If you have ever wanted to start a podcast, this 14-page bundle will help you get there. It walks you through every step of the strategy I developed when I launched SSR back in 2018 with some updated insights and ideas too. I am totally self-taught in every aspect of podcasting, but I want to save you some time, which is why I created the AHK Podcast Primer. For $89.99, you will get the podcast primer as well as a 30-minute one-on-one session with me to help you get your plan together. Get it at ahkstorytelling.com slash in dash your dash earbuds. You can also get it at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. Feel free to DM me if you have any questions. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is shit she read. Hi, Carly, welcome to SSR. Hi, thank you for having me. This is a long awaited episode. It is the Flowers in the Attic episode. And I have to tell you, Carly, that when you agreed to be on the show, first of all, I was so excited. Second of all, I was like, maybe we'll read Sweet Valley, maybe we'll read Babysitter's Club, maybe we'll read something about like a summer love. And then your publicist was like, oh no, she wants to read Flowers in the Attic. And I was like, first of all, curveball. And second of all, I'm thrilled because people have been requesting this book for a very long time. And I just needed you to be the one to encourage me to finally do it.
1: I am thrilled that you haven't done it yet. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity. And I was glad to have the opportunity to reread it. Okay,
0: I never read it. So this was a first for me. And before we jump into like my reactions to my first time through and your reactions to the reread, tell me a little bit about why you wanted to come back to this book and any memories that you have of it from when you were a kid.
1: Yeah, sure. So I read this book for the first time in I think grade six. I remember my friend bringing it to school one day, she had two older sisters quite a bit older. And I remember her bringing it to school one day gushing about how amazing the book was and immediately flipping to the sex scene. Of course. And I could picture us in the school library with this book looking, I can even see where that scene is on the page. It is so much in my memory. And I had to reread it three times before I could even tell that it was a sex scene. So that was my earliest memory of the book. And I'm sure I took it home then and read it. And then I read it again in eighth grade. I was very sick in eighth grade. I had strep throat three times. At the end of the year, my eighth grade teacher gave me the attendance award because I was away so often. And I was having a a tough time socially too. And that year I read every single one of V.C. Andrews's books that were in the Barrys Bay Public Library, including like all of the Flowers in the Attic books. And I. I think I had like my first book, quote unquote, that I wrote, the first story I wrote that was, I think it was like 60 handwritten pages was like V.C. Andrews style fiction about a girl in a small town, incest free. But yeah, so V.C. Andrews weighed heavily in my early reading life. That's great context. So I want to
0: preface this conversation and at least like my take on this book By saying that this book is hard to talk about for a lot of reasons. Of course, there are triggers galore. Yes. Listeners, you've already heard my trigger warnings at the beginning of this episode. If you skipped the intro, please be mindful that there are going to be triggers galore in this episode. But I think it's also, and I'm curious what you would say to this, Carly, like, it's a weird book to know how to have an opinion about because when I posted that I was reading it, The range of responses I got, it was so interesting because about half of them were like, this book is horrible, like it's totally traumatizing. I can't believe this is a book that's out there that people are still reading. But the other half were like, this book is amazing and I loved it and it doesn't get celebrated enough. And I often like elicit strong feelings with the books that I talk about on the show, but I think that's probably the most polarized response I've ever gotten and that's like before the episode has even dropped Mm -hmm. and since I finished it like I posted last night that I finished and that I was getting ready to record the episode today and a few people dm'd me and were like what did you think and I found myself stopping and I was like what do I say like what's the right answer here because there's a reason that this book is still around and that people still read it even though it's been banned in certain libraries and communities even though of course like People know that it is so triggering and dark, but also like I get why people are alarmed by it. So what I finally landed on in my responses to people was I was really prepared for what it was going to be. So I had like braced mm-hmm. myself for it and I was reading it, you know, kind of critically and academically getting ready to talk to you, Carly. And so I do think that I was able to like enjoy it for what it was. hmm. I think if I'd gone into it like not knowing what it was about, then I probably would have been devastated. But I think because I was like ready for it, I was able to be like, okay, like I get why people love this. I get why it has so much, I don't know, like is cultural cachet the right phrase? Like I just, I get it after reading it. But I just want to say listeners, this is like a hard book to have an opinion about. What do you think about that, Carly?
1: I understand why people would find this book off-putting yeah. to say the least like <laughs> for sure I understand that and I also think it's really important as a reader to know or any kind of a TV viewer any kind of like cultural consumption you need to be you aware of what you like and what you don't like and what is really hard for you to consume and what isn't for me I think that this is a truly excellent book and there are many books that are tough to read and it is you know onto the to the reader to decide whether that's something for them or not and it's obviously okay to not like something everybody is different as a reader i generally am not into dark fiction that's not usually where i am as a reader but rereading this book i was like this is this is a truly great piece of writing like this is a very well-crafted story we can get into why it's so controversial. Maybe we should we should talk about that, talk a bit about what the story is and why it's so controversial all these years later. Although I remember when I was reading it, it was not like as a kid, it's like, oh, this is just horror. This is like the the like the most terrible thing you can think of. Right. As a kid. And so it's this I think as adults we have a bit of a different perspective on it. Right. Yeah. I want to get into the plot. One other thing that I would say
0: that maybe will put listeners in I don't, there's no like right or wrong frame of mind. But something that I just want to share that one of my writing teachers when I was getting my MFA used to say is that you have to look at a piece of writing based on what it is trying to do and not based on what you as a reader want it to do. Yeah. And so readers, if you're somebody that like wants to read a nice story about a family who goes through a hard time and like comes through it all the better and it's happy the whole time, like this book is not ever going to conform to that. You sort of have to take this book from the place where it begins which is like this is a really dark fucking piece of writing and it's it's hard and i respect everybody's triggers of course but i just thought that might also be a helpful sort of mindset for people as we get into the wild ride that is flowers in the attic okay where do we want to start carly this is a long book so we're not going to be able to cover all of the various twists and turns should we go like right to the attic Yeah, sure. Let's head up to the attic. Okay, we're up in the attic. And we're in the attic because of a death. So we should set the scene there. We have four children. We have Kathy, who is our narrator. We have Christopher, who is her older brother. And they have younger twin siblings, Carrie and Corey. They all are, like, blonde and beautiful and adorable. They have these blonde and beautiful parents who are young and very much in love. And they have kind of this, like, idyllic middle-class childhood their father is killed in a car accident and their mother is put in a position to figure out what to do next financially with her children. And I did the math before I think they even identified how old the mom was. And the mom is 33 years old. I am 32 years old.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Chris And Kathy, at the beginning of the book, are 12 and 15. Right.
0: So I was like, okay, I'm having some more empathy for the mom. Like, she doesn't know what she's going to do. She's in this very scary situation financially. She has not been set up. Like, she says herself, like, I don't have any skills. Like, nobody ever taught me how to take care of you. I've just – I'm a mom. There's a lot in this book, I think, about, like, gender roles and heteronormativity and, like, what women are expected to do versus what men are expected to do. But their mom basically puts together this plan where they're going to go back to her family of origin they're very wealthy, but she she's like, I just have to keep you guys hidden for a little while because my parents don't really know about you. But once they know about you, they're going to be fine. It's going to be great. They're going to give us all their money and it's going to be happy ever after. Like I, we're just going to like live our lives. It's going to be wonderful. And the kids, because they are kids, they just trust their mother. And then we get to the attic and, like, honestly, I was a little confused about, like, the the layout because there's the attic and then there's the, like, room under the attic where they seem to be sleeping. Yeah. And then they, they go to the attic as, like, that's sort of, like, their playroom and that's where they hide when they need to be even more hidden.
1: Yes. Yeah. They, there is a staircase yes. to the attic in the closet of the bedroom, I believe. Yes. And so they get to their house is an enormous. So the attic is this enormous place for them to run around, but it's old and dirty and creepy. So they decide to decorate it because the twins are afraid of it. And I would be too. A lot of the book is is like about how they make this attic beautiful with art and um, there's a little like classroom upstairs in the attic, too, where children must have been taught at some point in time. But there's a lot of attention to detail, I think, in in both clothing and decoration in this book, how things how things look. And, yeah, so you get to kind of like really feel like we're in the attic, I think, when we're up there, yeah, because they spend a lot of time in it. And so, as
0: readers, you do feel immersed. and i I think it is such a credit to VC. Andrews writing because, We've read a lot of books, I'm sure, all of us, in which characters spend a great deal of time in one location, and we still don't feel like we have a sense of that location the way we do in this book. And to your point, Carly, like I felt like I was in it.
1: I remember so much of the description from when I read it first as a child because it's so vivid, and that that stayed with me these (laughs) decades later. The writing is, on a line level, is so beautiful and just she really And it's interesting because vc andrews was an artist and she really kind of paints visual pictures for her reader
0: yeah i think that's a really great way to put it and i i was impressed by the writing too i read a couple of reviews that were not as complimentary of the writing which i thought was strange because i was very taken with her
1: prose Yeah, the book was not critically successful when it was first published. Um, I believe that was that 1979 when this book came out. Yes. So it was not a critical success, but it was a huge commercial hit. And that quickly got her uh, another book deal to follow it up, which I think the first print run was something like two million copies I read. So (laughs) she really struck a chord. And I think that I haven't read any of the reviews, but I could guess as to why they didn't like the book. And I would say it has nothing to do with the quality of the book.
0: Yeah, I I agree. I mean, their views were, of course, like very focused on the content of the book. But I was surprised even that some of them called out her writing. And again, like, you can take issue with the content of the book. But it's hard for me to understand how anybody wouldn't be impressed with her talents as a writer. So yeah, it's just kind of fascinating how people let their opinions of content creep into their ability to.
1: Well, I think she has a very feminine eye. Mm. You know, there's a lot of attention to things that girls and women typically appreciate and are considered female. And I think that is probably why her writing was diminished. Yeah, that's true.
0: Especially at that point in history. That's a great point. And worth noting, of course, that she wrote under V.C. Andrews in hopes of attracting more men. To pick up the book so Mm. we hate that for her but she has sold millions and millions and millions of books so that ended up being okay in terms of the commercial success as you mentioned so let's talk about like the darkness of the attic we've talked about how they're making it pretty they are trying to decorate it so that the twins are happy to be up there Because they are literally not allowed to leave. No. And it's all as far as they know because of the grandmother and the rules that the grandmother sets down for them. She is this very religious woman, very puritanical, and she comes in with this long list of rules. And she says that if she catches them breaking any of the rules, she's going to whip them. And we actually do see quite graphic scenes of that kind of abuse later in the book which you know added to the list Mm -hmm. of triggers but I did find the list of rules fascinating and so thorough like she really did not miss a beat with these
1: rules that she's come up for the grandchildren yes no the rules are incredible there's got to be there's more than a dozen I think rules I think there were 16 because I was
0: writing them down I have like my my margin notes on this book are out of control and i was writing down like with each one i numbered them i want to say they were somewhere between 15 and 20.
1: there were a lot right and a lot of them are about how the relationship between uh, the siblings and specifically like keeping boys and girls apart And then also relationship to your own body, like not touching your body, not looking at your body, not thinking about your body so that you can see kind of the seeds of where the story is is going, and also like some of the like some of the twists that aren't revealed in the beginning of the book. But the grandmother is, you know, they they get this like long list of rules which they find like outrageous and kind of funny. Like this woman does not mean all of this, but they also think at the beginning that they're only going to be in there for a couple of days, right. like a day, two days, and they're in there for three years. Yeah. So that's where I think the you know, you're kind of like, it's very, um, it's very, it's a page turner, this book, even though not that much happens. Like, yes, there is plenty of abusive behavior, but not that much happens in this book. And yet it's still such a, a page turner. And one of the things I found really incredible was how she really draws out the first few days and how horrible it was to be locked in that space for just those like the first hours the first days and then the like subsequent years go by a lot faster which i think was such a brilliant really real way of how time works and she vc andrews was she had i believe it was rheumatoid arthritis and so her mobility was very from a young age she she used crutches and then I think a wheelchair and her ability to write about what it feels like if you feel confined is so incredible and a lot of the book I think is about that that just the feeling of confinement yeah she's
0: she's been quoted talking about that feeling. So what what I discovered about her history, it's really quite tragic. As you mentioned, so she had rheumatoid arthritis when she was young. Then she fell down the stairs, I think partially because of rheumatoid arthritis, like her body just didn't move the way that it was meant to. And so I think she got caught on a banister, took a fall down the stairs. Then she went to get surgery to correct that injury. And the surgeon had a mini stroke during the procedure and like snapped her hip somehow in a way that oh my it couldn't be corrected. And so, yes, she was confined to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. And when asked about her inspiration for the book, because she's also been quoted saying that like things about it were real mm-hmm. and none of the family scenarios had anything to do with her, but she, she did once say, when I wrote Flowers in the Attic, all of Kathy's feelings about being in prison were my feelings, so that when I read them now, I cry. So I do think she put a lot of that into her writing. Interestingly, in 1981, one of the Iran hostages who was returned to the US claimed that Flowers in the Attic was the only book that he had ever read that got captivity right Mm. he said if you read that you can understand our plight a little better and what we felt like in iran so yeah i mean vc andrews sadly like knew what she was talking about with this feeling of imprisonment in a unique way and it seems to have resonated with people who experienced that kind of captivity in other ways too
1: yeah that's incredible i also thought she did i'm not sure how old do you know how old she was when she wrote this book So I read that she was always a little bit weird about her
0: age. She she was just like kind of a mysterious woman. I I think that she died fairly young, but her New York Times obituary talks about how like nobody really knew how old she was. She she died of (laughs) breast cancer, they think maybe in her like late 40s or 50s. So the vast majority of the books written under the V.C. Andrews name are actually by a ghostwriter.
1: Yes. Yeah. She had several careers, I think, before she started writing. So I just assumed she was in her 30s or 40s when she was writing this book. And I thought she did such a great job capturing what it's like to be young, like to be an adolescent or preteen. The voice of Kathy is so wonderful. She is very moody. She is so self-pitying. And I loved her. Like she is a character. I don't re- I haven't read a character like that in a long time and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was so she was so fun and she just did a great job of growing up with the characters and I thought I wondered where that came from. And I'm not sure like why she has such a great why she had such a great ability to write about young people, but I I thought that that was another really strong part of the book. One of the things that I thought was strongest
0: in her depiction of the kids, because I agree with you that she does a really fantastic job of embodying that voice, is their perception of their parents, more specifically their mother. Yes. Which segues us nicely into a conversation about the complexities there. Of course, at the beginning of the book, before all of this happens, as I mentioned, they have this idyllic childhood and they they admire their parents. There's a little bit of hero worship I think especially with the dad which feels very 50s and of the time of like, you know, the dad going off to work in the morning and then he comes back and it's a highlight of everybody's day. But even when things take a turn and their mom has to make the choice to go back to Foxworth, which is her childhood home, the trust that the older kids especially have in her at the beginning, it really felt accurate to the way that most kids, if if you're privileged enough to have that kind of a safe childhood, like I think that's how most kids would feel about their parents, just kind of like worshiping the ground they walk on to an extent, trusting them implicitly, expecting that they will always have your best interests at heart, and seeing how each of the kids, especially Kathy and Chris, evolve in their understanding of their mother throughout the book, Mm is kind of fascinating because Kathy is much quicker to start to be suspicious of like, why is this taking so long? Because as you said, Carly, like this night or two that their mom promised them in the attic has turned into weeks and then months and ultimately years. But Chris has a really hard time letting go of that fondness for his mom.
1: Yeah, Chris idealizes his mother and Kathy doesn't quite believe her. Like she sees her mother as acting at certain points much faster. In fact, I don't think Chris, Chris doesn't realize it until the very end of the, he doesn't really um, have his faith shattered until the end of the book. And it leads to one of the biggest tragedies in the book is his inability to kind of realize what's going on, like what his mother's really all about. But Kathy is way more cynical. She's just, a, you know, that's their personality differences. Or Chris is sunny, and Kathy is is cynical, and she also has a really focused eye on her mother at all times and in all things. At first, it's kind of like how to be a woman, mm-hmm. how to talk to men, how to dress, how you should look, and then later it's uh, it becomes more critical.
0: And I I sort of loved to watch that facade fall because I think, of course, this is like a very extreme situation, but something that I've observed in a lot of the YA we read for the podcast is this realization that pretty much all of us have to have at some point that our parents are human and fallible and often make mistakes and do things that hurt other people, do things that hurt us. And this was obviously like a much more intense version of that story because we have Kathy coming to that realization over an extended period of time and her mom's true colors are perhaps much darker than most people are ever forced to
1: realize in their own parents. Yes and it's interesting that can we talk about the relationship between Kathy and Chris's mom and dad. Yes. Can we spoil that? Yeah, let's do it. This is like the earliest twist in the book Right, is that, so Kathy and Chris's mom has been disinherited by her father because of, they realize it has something to do with her marriage to their dad. And they find out fairly early in the book that it's because their father is their mother's half uncle. Yes. So they are children of an incestuous relationship. This is why they must be kept a secret. And also the reason why their mom was disinherited. So she, the mom is trying to win back her father's favor. And what's interesting about that revelation I found when I was reading it is how, you know, the mom's kind of explaining this to the children, how this relationship came to be. And they are very sympathetic and not yeah. that shocked. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I believe that take. But they are they are even like quite they're so trusting at that point. Like they love their parents so much that even that bit of I think kind of earth-shattering news is like, okay, no, their parents, they must have had a good read. Like <laughs> that was interesting. That was funny. I thought it was funny. Well,
0: they buy into the romance of it Ew. which I found interesting. And like, so the the line on the book cover and this is the 40th anniversary edition it says the classic best-selling novel of forbidden love and like here's the thing Carly like I'm in on this book I really enjoyed reading it I don't know that that's how I would describe it and I feel like this line about forbidden love is really coming from Kathy and Chris's perspective because to them like their parents are this almost Romeo and Juliet story of like The world tried to keep them apart, but they were so in love that like they beat the odds and they still got married. And everybody thought that their kids would potentially like be ill or have other chromosomal issues. But look at us, like we're beautiful. Like we're this perfect family. And so for me, like I just want that line off the cover of the book. And then I'm like much more in, even more in than I already am. But I do think that the kids buy into this love story. And like, I think that that is True, especially for younger children. Like, I assume at this point, Kathy and Chris, even though they're older than Corey and Carrie, haven't been exposed to the idea of incest before or the idea of inc- incestuous relationships before. So, this is just their parents' story and they romanticize it. And, I, like, this is, of course, a different situation, but like, as a child of divorce, my parents got divorced when I was two years old. And so, any aspect of their love story, I'm like, yes, that's so romantic. And so I do feel like there's this thing that happens to kids that they just like, they're like, tell me everything about their story and they romanticize it. So I I felt like that was a little bit of what was going on, Mm. but I didn't want to feel like that was imposed on me as a reader. Like I wanted to be able to sort of watch them take it in and watch them have their like processing of it, but also acknowledge the fact that like, yes, this was an incestuous relationship and I am shocked.
1: Yeah, I think that is the intention is that yeah. the the reader is shocked. I don't think any part of this book romanticizes incest at all. I do not think that is the intention of the author. I think the cover line saying that it's a novel of forbidden love yeah. is it's not an accurate <laughs> it's not an accurate description of the novel. Right. However, it is the most marketable aspect True. of the book. This is why so many people picked up the book because it was so it's so wild. And like, I have to read this to uh, like, everybody's talking about this. I need to know what's going on. And so that's when, you know, if you post about, when I posted about this book on social media, that's what people are like, that's like the first thing people remember about the book and what really has, and not surprisingly, (laughs) overshadows kind of all other, all other, other conversation about it.
0: And this forces us to talk about the other. Yes case of incest in the book that we that we see unfold in a much more real time fashion. I think this is probably more of the forbidden love that this marketing line is trying to talk about, although allude to, to, although as you said, Carly, I agree, like, I don't think that this is romanticized at all inside. That's why I'm like, this feels misleading. Okay, so this was what I was prepared for. I didn't know that the parents were also um, in an incestuous relationship. I wish I hadn't known any of it because I think I would have read it in a much different way. I was like fully prepared Mm -hmm. for anything to happen, but I did know that two of the siblings were going to have some sort of a romantic incestuous relationship. I think maybe we have to talk about Chris a little bit more first and just like Chris's vibe because Chris does have an interesting vibe. How did you take him coming back to the book now as an adult?
1: I I just have so much sympathy for these kids yeah. honestly. I I don't I don't it is very difficult for me to look at them critically or in a harsh light. I can't imagine what it would be like to be locked up for 3 years as a teenager, boy or girl. But you know, Chris is he has an interesting arc in that he starts out really optimistic and then becomes really sullen and I think frustrated and sexually frustrated uh, including that jealous disillusioned like his he is fighting his disillusionment like he doesn't he wants to believe in his mom he's having a really hard time he's the oldest of all the kids he is self-sacrificing there's a fairy I didn't remember this when I was, from when I first read it, but there is a really disturbing scene where the kids are being starved. The grandmother is not bringing them any food because they've done something wrong. They've broken a rule. I don't remember which rule they broke. And the twins who are very frail are like on the edge of death and Chris has them drink his blood for nutrients. And so that's just how, I think that's almost the darkest scene in the book to be honest. Yeah. And so my, view on them is (laughs) just one of sympathy, honestly. Like, like I really like come at it from that, come at all the characters, all the kids in that, from that place. There is a piece that I found um, on Book Riot that was
0: written in 2019, sort of in celebration of the 40 year anniversary. And there's a line that I think sort of speaks to what you're saying, Carly. It says, the horror in the narrative stems from exaggerated versions of questions that easily arise from the teenage imagination. What if my parents keep me from the future I want? Do I have to be just like my parents? What if I have to grow up too fast and aren't allowed the latitude teenagers usually get? These are questions that could be and sometimes are addressed in more realistic young adult fiction. BC Andrews uses the intense drama and exaggeration available to a writer using gothic tropes to provide her resounding answer. It would be terrifying and it would scar you for life, but you would be able to get out alive. So I feel like what I'm hearing you say, and I think this is a fair assessment, is that like these are normal kids having normal teenage stresses and fears, asking themselves normal teenage questions. And V.C. Andrews has put them in not only an abnormal situation, but a traumatic situation, a dangerous Mm -hmm. situation, a situation that is bound to mess with their minds and hearts and bodies and all of those things. And so I think maybe the sympathy you're talking about comes from that. Like we've all lived through a normal childhood. We know what it feels like even under the best of circumstances, to navigate being a teenager. And so being a teenager in these circumstances is just fundamentally going to drive you to do things that you certainly wouldn't have done otherwise.
1: Yeah, and I think any, any person of any age in, <laughs> in a situation where you have no power, freedom, and hope, like their hope is really runs out, and their health too is really diminished. I think that it is it would it would be really hard for me to be hard on those kids. I can't I can't be.
0: I think something that is easy to forget too, unless you're reading it, like we're reading it for the purposes of this deep dive into the book, is that part of what happens, at least in my reading of it, between Kathy and Chris, is that there's this like confusion. And this, this blurring of the lines of roles in their relationships because mm-hmm. they're growing older in this attic. They don't have exposure to any adults. Like the grandmother comes once a day and drops off food for them. Their mom visits, but with decreasing frequency over the course of the story. So they don't have any exposure to what it quote like should look like to be in different kinds of relationships and different kinds of family dynamics And they are, as they're getting older and experiencing puberty and like sexual urges and all of that, they don't necessarily like know how to separate the feelings that they're feeling for each other from the way they were raised to be brother and sister. They also are doing this playing house thing, which makes a lot of sense to me because they have these much younger siblings who need their care and who are literally crying out for their parents. And so Kathy and Chris assume these very explicit mom and dad roles. And they joke a little bit about like, oh, well, like I'm the man of the house. Like, come over and sit on my lap, kids. So they're, they're kind of play acting all of these different parts. They're play acting the parts of parents, which then sort of implicitly forces them to play act the part of husband and wife, because that's what they know. They also have these deep feelings of sibling love that that they were raised with because they were very close from the time they were babies. And now they have these feelings like that they don't necessarily know what to do with because they're teenagers. And we've talked on other episodes of the podcast, even about like blurred lines for teenagers between like sexual feelings, romantic feelings, and just friendship Mm -hmm. feelings. And like Mm -hmm. when you have never been in a relationship before and you're a teenager, it's hard to know like how you're supposed to direct just feelings of fondness that you have for people in your mm-hmm. life. And so this is, of course, that totally on overdrive because they don't have any other outlets. And so there's a lot of blurred lines.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's their roles as these parental figures start out as play acting. But by the end, it is not a game. The twins think of them as their parents. They they go for months without seeing their mother. And they care for the kids the kids. I mean, they're teenagers, so they care care for them like they are teenage parents, but they care for them as their children. And I think for anybody who hasn't read the book, there's some like sexual scenes and one like scene that would be considered the sex scene, which is not tremendously graphic. So and I think it's important to say that it's not romantic either. Like, and in fact, Chris classifies it as a rape. And the consent is is not not clear in in this case and kathy does not consider it a, an assault but it is obvious that he is like immediately regretful but he's also having a really hard time untangling his feet like he feels like i think he like develops quite a romantic love for his sister that his sister does not necessarily share it's very murky and it's very uncomfortable and i think you know vc andrews could have written this book without that element, absolutely. But I think in this context, it it doesn't come out of nowhere, and it does like make sense. I feel weird saying that, but it's like it's like yeah, okay, shut these people up together for years and years. They go through puberty, and this is what could happen. Like, and what's interesting, of course, is this is the grandmother thinks that they are what does she call them? Devils. Devil spawn. Yeah, like they're. She thinks they're inherently evil. And so they're, they're trying to prove that they're not. And then in the end, this happens. And so it's just, it's like, it's part of the reason why the book is tragic and horrifying. Like I would classify it as a horror, this book, personally.
0: The author of that book, Riot. Article that I referenced a few minutes ago also wrote the horror of Kathy's eventual rape is not in its unexpectedness, but in its inevitability, thanks to the tragic circumstances of the characters and the internal logic of the narrative, which speaks to what you just said, Carly. And I think also there's this there's this sense of uh, history repeating itself because we of course have their parents that had an ancestral relationship but they had more of a choice, like they fell in love with each other. And I think Mm -hmm. it would be dangerous for us as readers to assume that as you said, like Kathy and Chris, that sex scene is some like romantic choice they're making. Mm -hmm. It's much murkier than that. And so I think separating Mm -hmm. those things is challenging, but very important. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There are some big revelations and tragedies and twists and turns that happen toward the end of the book that I want to make sure we touch on before we start to wind our conversation down. There's a real tragedy with Corey, one of the twins. He dies. And as as you mentioned, Carly, like a lot of the blame, I think, before there are more revelations that come to light, it, it comes on to Chris. Like Chris bears a lot of that responsibility because he is so desperate to hold on to his trust of their mom that he like doesn't want to believe that she would leave them in danger in harm's way. And so even though Corey is becoming very unhealthy, I mean, both of the twins are very frail and sick and never really recover from those first couple of days in the attic. Chris sort of wants to like stick it out. And I'm an oldest child in my family. So (laughs) I connected that feeling of like, no, we've got this. We don't need to ask for help. Our parents have equipped us. Everything's fine. I'll take care of it. He does not want to sort of raise the alarm level on this. And they wait too long to tell their grandmother that something's wrong with Corey. By the time he goes to the hospital, it's too late and he dies. But does he go to the hospital? Right. Does he go to the hospital? And did he have pneumonia? Answer? No, he did not (laughs) have pneumonia. We find out later on that these powdered sugar donuts that the grandmother had been bringing them every day have arsenic mixed in with the powdered sugar. And Christopher, who is this like aspiring doctor, he knows enough about arsenic and poisoning to be able to say that like, oh, this is a thing that will kill you over time, but it's meant to be a very slow death. It's meant to take its effects over an extended period of time. I think it's worth noting that V.C. Andrews served her editor a plate of powdered sugar donuts the first time they met in person. (laughs) Oh my goodness. That's amazing. Can you imagine? (laughs) Yes, that's just so great. Yeah, and the editor, of course, had like already read the whole book. And then V.C. Andrews is like, hello, (laughs) may I offer you some donuts? (laughs) What a character. I know. And so that's like a big oh shit moment for the kids toward the end because they realized that as far as they know, the grandmother has been poisoning them. But again, is it the grandmother? No. Well, we don't think so. Now we have to talk about the mom. Yeah, we have to talk about the mom now.
1: Yeah, <sighs> so while the mom is supposed to be learning how to become a typist, I believe, yeah. so she can get a job right. and get an apartment for them because it's becoming clear that the grandfather is never going to let her have her, in her once inheritance. She is actually falling in love with a. Another man and gallivanting. I think like she's sailing and playing tennis and traveling. She's having the best time. She's being a childless thirty-three-year-old woman, which like I get. She's Got a great tan. Yeah, she looks good. Uh-huh. She feels good. <laughs> and yeah, Chris. Chris starts stealing. From, they they start. I think is they make this fake key that lets them get out of the out of their room, and he begins stealing money so that they can eventually escape. And this is like when they find out all this stuff about, they see the mother's boyfriend, um, the mother, I mean, the greatest betrayal you think is that the mother just takes off and, and moves out one day, that the grandfather has been dead this grandfather they're like waiting for the grandfather to die he's very ill and he should die and then they should get all the money the grandfather has been dead for nine months and the mother has left and taken all her jewelry that kathy's been trying to get chris to steal so they can run away and pawn it and you think that is like the greatest betrayal of um the mother but then at the end of the book chris and kathy think that no the mom has been trying to poison them because if it is, she has now inherited her father's money, not passed it on to them. And there is like a clause, I guess, in the will saying that if it is ever discovered, (laughs) so specific, if it is ever discovered that she has had children by her first husband, she will have to give all the money back. So she's taken the money and, and run and is trying to, they think, trying to kill them off.
0: Right, they basically realized that there was never anything in it for the grandmother to try to kill them. Because even though the grandmother is like scary and mean and intimidating, the money was always going to go to their mother. So this whole time, they thought that the grandmother was the one who might have an incentive to kill them or get rid of them. But when it comes to light that everything was going to their mother anyway they put two and two together and they have this new theory that it was the mom who was putting arsenic in the donuts and then it was the grandmother who's just like bringing them upstairs and serving them. Just. Just just. just. <laughs> she was just like, you know, eating and, and abusing abetting. them. Yeah, and abusing them. There are just like no there are no adult heroes in this book. Like nobody is good. Um mm-hmm. only the kids are good. And that's, you know, that's a thing that we talk about a lot on the podcast is like the appeal of books for kids in which The kids can only rely on themselves and adults are just inherently bumbling idiots at best or at worst out to get you. And I think there can be like no better example than flowers in the attic.
1: Yeah, especially, you know, um, moms and grandmas are – to have, you know, when I was rereading it, I was like, yeah, a grandmother who actively hates you and is trying to harm you. That is terrifying for a child. And then you throw the mother on top of that. That's wow. Like these are supposed to be our safe people. And I do, I think there is a reading of this book to where you can count Chris as a villain for sure. Like Mm -hmm. absolutely. Had he stolen jewelry earlier, they could have been out of there. Had he not trusted their mother a long time ago corey may have survived i think you could argue that he has sexually assaulted his sister like i think you could come like chris can come out as a villain too depending on how how you look at it but certainly it's the mother and the grandmother who are the most the most evil of villains in this in the story yeah and people have
0: raised their eyebrows over the years that vc andrews dedicated it to her mother. Yes, because she's openly talked about how like great her childhood was. So people are like really nice to dedicate your first book to your mom, but like maybe not this book.
1: <laughs> well, I have also I also read and, and I don't it's hard to know what is factually accurate and what isn't that she and her mother had a fraught relationship. Her mother and her mother would always appeared beside her at her book events looking quite severe and that her mother also never read the book. So those are rumors that I have read and so who who knows and also that once VC Andrews said she was in this book she was writing all the things she, that her mother did not want her to write
0: VC Andrews also once said that she wrote this book in 2 days and she then also once said that she wrote it in one night so I don't know what we can believe
1: <laughs> <laughs> And then I so and then I read on this this like encyclopedia entry today that it was many years like it was years of crafting so she was she is the master storyteller of her own life that's for sure she was she was weaving tales on and off the page I think yeah I'm not sure how reliable of a narrator she was about some
0: of this but (laughs) there's a lot out there to dig into if you want to Carly I have a feeling I know how you're going to answer this question but I would love for you to tie it up for us in a bow how would you compare this experience of coming back to Flowers in the Attic as an adult to your memories of reading it as a
1: I am so impressed as an adult, really. And I remember thinking it was a good book and not just for the salacious reasons when I was younger. And then reading it as an adult, I was I was quite blown away to be honest by how terrifically told the story was. Yeah,
0: I think that's very well said. I enjoyed it as just a piece of beautifully written and plotted fiction obviously very upsetting and complicated and would not recommend to a lot of people in my life I would tell them to stay away from this but taking it for what it's supposed to be and what it was intended to be I I thought it was it definitely lived up to the hype for me other than Flowers in the Attic Carly what have you been reading lately that you might recommend to our listeners
1: well i wanted to talk about um a book that is coming out this summer in i believe it's in june it's uh called the whispers it's by ashley audrain who is a canadian author like myself her debut novel the push came out i believe it was in 2020 and i thought this would be the whispers her her second book would be good to talk about because it is a dark she writes dark domestic thrillers. And if you like Ashley's books, or if you liked Flowers in the Attic, then I think you would like The Push, Ashley's first book, which is about a mother who suspects her child is a sociopath. And this book, The Whispers, which is about a a child who has mysteriously fallen out of their bedroom window and has been hospitalized. And it's told from the perspective of four women, including his mother, in the neighborhood surrounding this, this accident. And it's really, it is dark and it is, very much about the secret lives of women. And I think like Flowers in the Attic, you can you can challenge yourself to have sympathy for people who don't seem so sympathetic. <laughs> and it's, it's beautifully told. She's also, Ashley is just a gorgeous writer. So that's coming out in June. And then for lighter fare, I was going to mention the book X's and O's by Amy Lee, which was out in January, and this is Amy's uh, second rom com, and it's about a bookstagrammer. Actually, I'm—I don't think that's quite right. I, a book, I think maybe a blogger, but a book influencer, romance books in particular, who has had some bad luck in love and is trying to fashion herself a second chance romance by revisiting 10 of her exes (laughs) in the hopes that one of them will be her second chance romance. So this very, and during this like misguided attempt, she and her roommate kind of fall in love. And I think Amy is, if you need a palette cleanser after Flowers in the Attic, this would be a great palette cleanser. Amy is a really fun writer, but she also does a great job at looking at Social issues, but not she's not heavy-handed. So looking at kind of the crazy ex-girlfriend, the idea of the crazy ex-girlfriend is what she's kind of tackling in this book. And and I really liked it. And Amy is also Canadian. So those are those are my two Canadian author recommendations. Canadian authors stick together.
0: <laughs> and you have a new book coming out next week as this episode goes live on May 2nd. It's called Meet Me at the Lake. Congratulations. What can you tell us about it?
1: Yes, um, it is about Fern Brookbanks, who is in her early 30s. Her mother has recently passed and she's gone home to run her mom's resort in kind of a cottagey lakeside area. Uh, So it's a lakeside resort. And this is something that she has promised she would never do. She never wanted to run this place. She never wanted to take over the resort. And her ex-boyfriend is the manager. The place is in a bit, bit of a bad state. And in walks in, this man who she met one one day, 10 years ago, with an offer to help her. And she's in kind of a a dire, it's a dire situation, and she's trying to figure out whether she should take his help. And they met, the book is told over the course of one summer, this, this summer where Fern is back at the resort, and the course of, in the past, it's told over 24 hours where Fern meets this man, his name is Well. They're in their early 20s and they have this kind of, they're strangers, they have this chance encounter that leads to them spending 24 hours together in the city, um, in Toronto. And they become like instant friends. They share all their secrets. They talk about the future and they have a really great connection and they make a pact to meet one year later. And it's this day is really important to both of them. It changes both of their lives. And so Fern shows up one year later, but Will does not. So she, when he walks into the resort 10 years in the future, this is the first time that she's seen him since that day in the past. And he is nothing like she thought he would be. And she doesn't know whether she can trust him or not. And so it kind of is, it's uh, goes back and forth between those two times timelines. And it is a love story. And yeah, that's, that's Meet Me at the Lake. Well, I personally can't wait to read it. It sounds like the
0: perfect way to kick off the summer in books, get a little jump on the summer in books. Carly, I have so enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for being brave enough to tackle flowers in the attic with me. (laughs) I could not have thought of a better person to discuss it with. And uh, I know that we as an SSR community are so grateful for your work. So many fans of every summer after in our family, and we are all eagerly anticipating your new book too. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.